Hello, I'm Noah Gibbs, and this is Computer Science, Just the Useful Bits. Uh, I'm here with Jennifer Tran, a cloud engineer, and uh, we're going to talk a little about her education and how it's prepared her for working in this, uh, this, this kind of job we've all, we've all got. Uh, hey, Jennifer. Hey, Noah. It's, uh, it's good to have you here. It's good to talk to you. Can you tell me a little bit about how you learned to write code? Yeah, definitely. I had a pretty standard formal education in computer science um, at a University of California college. But prior to my CS education, I actually was a part of a program called SPICE at UCSD called Summer Programming for Incoming Students. And that's where I initially learned how to program. To provide some more context, I actually went into college with my major declared as computer science without actually having any knowledge of computer science, not even what programming was, what a terminal was. So, yeah. Huh. So why, why did you go in with the declared major of computer science? What, what made it appealing to you? Honestly, looking at works of user experience designers online captivated me. I had watched TED Talks, and I thought what they were doing was innovative, creative, and exciting. And I was actually pushed by the adults in my life at the time to go into computer science, not really knowing what it was. And coming from a background where my parents didn't have higher education or even high school, I wasn't prepared to make such a serious decision, but just luckily found computer science. Pretty much all of us as kids go into it not really being prepared to make adult choices, and uh, <laughs> by, by and large, we stagger through it. Yeah. I, I feel like you did all right on choosing a computer programming major. I don't know how you feel about it, but you know, I, I feel like you could have done worse. Yeah, I, I actually feel tremendously grateful. I feel like it's such an empowering tool, um, such an interesting subject, and I feel like it really aligns with what I'm naturally interested in anyway. The only thing about a computer science major at a university like the University of California, San Diego, is that it's extremely competitive. And so I was not prepared for that. But luckily, I was invited to be part of SPICE. And SPICE was actually a program that was intended for students from high schools that didn't have any sort of computer science program available or very basic ones. So I actually had a few colleagues within the program who had only been introduced to Java through like AP computer science. And we all had um, a similar curriculum where we were introduced to Python and we just created lots of small applications. And then we also were introduced to ethics and computer science ethics, yeah. Nice, roughly when was this uh, that you took Spice? This was in 2013. I, I, I love hearing about people having an ethics curriculum of some kind. Uh, that was not a thing when I did it. And yeah. you know, like, like so much of, of my education, I look back on it and I say, that didn't really prepare me terribly well for a lot of things that are just happening in the world. They were great preparation for, you know, 10 years ago, but uh, I also graduated in 98. So to be fair, them not preparing <laughs> me for, you know, everything in 2010 is fair. Um, yeah. Can you tell me a little about what they said about ethics in computer science? I'm really curious. Yeah, so we actually, they, they were never explicit with us. Um, we read literature hmm. um, and novels and had to come up like as a class uh, with our conclusions and our opinions, I guess. And it varied among um, different students, but it was, a, it was a great starting point because I had never even considered um, the impact of 
like technology on our society, even though by that yeah. point it, it had a tremendous impact. Yeah. Most people um, don't. Yeah. Uh, so I'm curious, you say novels, I, something goes yeah. through my head when you say that, but I'll bet you had different ones in class. Do you remember any of the novels? The most memorable one that we read was iRobot. Mm. Yeah. Um, I was never introduced to the author prior to this class, but it was a great way to begin applying what I had learned in this program so far about computer science um, to like some dystopia. Fair. Yeah. 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 iRobot is, uh, it's still such a great book. And at the same time, it's so inapplicable day to day to a lot of what we do because he just assumed mm -hmm. computers were going to be a lot more capable than they were. Yeah. Um, it's a lot of the early computer literature is like that. William Gibson talks about how he used the proceeds of Neuromancer to buy his very first computer. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. It was an Apple II. As he said, he expected something with like crystals and, and, and something <laughs> that felt, you know, advanced and futuristic. And instead, mm -hmm. it's sort of Victorian, which. Yep, that's an Apple too. I learned on one as well. That, <laughs> yep, that's exactly what it seems like. I actually don't even know what an Apple II looks like. Uh, so back when computers were all beige plastic, the Apple II included, uh, and before long, you know, once you had them for any length of time, they were dirty beige plastic because they picked up a strong static charge and they were impossible to clean properly. Um, oh. You had big, boxy, rectangular, uh, five and a quarter inch drives. If you were rich, you had two of them. They weren't really hard drives, like not inside the machine either, but you had the, the little floppy drives were either built into a whole little case, but more often sort of stacked on top of a tilted keyboard and a box behind it, which contained the interesting part of the computer. Uh, and again, if you were rich, you might plug it into a, uh, a separate sort of cathode ray tube. It looked like an old television, but it was the computer a kind of old television. So it had the specific Apple resolution, which was, I don't remember if it, I think it was lower than TV resolution, um, but a lot of people plugged them into TVs. There were no hard drives. Uh, hmm. There were no mice. Not 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 with the Apple II. The Macintosh actually was the first computer that, uh, really? that shipped with a mouse. There were sort of proto mice, things that you you wouldn't necessarily say, oh, that's a standard mouse um, mm -hmm. that you could get for the Apple II. But very few programs used them, and the operating system certainly didn't. Generally, you booted it up, and it came up with a little a little text prompt telling you you were an AppleSoft Basic, uh, and that was what you had instead of the command line, instead of the console, mm -hmm. uh, and instead of the graphical user interface, you had a, a well, I suppose by modern sensibilities, what you had was a sort of conceptual upraised <laughs> middle finger, and we don't do that here. Uh, <laughs> but it was it was like DOS or or you know a lot of the old ones where you booted into what was essentially the console, uh, and mm -hmm. you got one console because it's not like you generally ran multiple programs at once. You ran a program, and it was the console, and the console was capable of running a different program, which would stop the console and start the other program at least until you quit, if that program allowed you to quit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, old stuff. Sorry. So yeah, you know, computer uh, ethics and stuff. Do you remember any classes that you found were especially interesting in your education? Did you take, I don't know, a big project class like operating systems or compilers or anything? Yeah. So uh, the computer science curriculum at UCSD was pretty thorough. So we were required to take operating systems and compilers. I loved my compilers class. Um, but the the courses that stood out to me the most were actually the theoretical one, okay. the theoretical ones, which I know is probably an unconventional take. I, I guess I just have that kind of personality who likes to prove things before I go about and implement or use things. That makes sense. Uh, I, I find it interesting because I know you from Ruby conventions and I mm -hmm. associate the people with the strong 
proof and theory uh, orientation as being more interested in a lot of the static type languages and things like Haskell and the other stuff that's more sort of, has, has sort of similar feeling sensibilities. So I find it interesting, not so much that you say that, but that you say that, and I know you're from the Ruby community. Yeah, yeah, it's very true. Um, I actually do really love OCaml, but yeah, and, and speaking about OCaml, I was actually introduced to it from one of our programming languages courses hmm. where we used OCaml and most notably Prolog. Mm. Um, yeah. So I had a class in Prolog, not in OCaml, because I'm, I'm old enough that they didn't have OCaml. <laughs> we, had, uh, we used its, its hideous predecessor, SMLNJ, Standard Metal Language of New Jersey. Wow. Yeah, it's, I, I, everything I hear about OCaml makes it sound like OCaml is better, so you're not missing out. <laughs> good to know, good to know. Cool. So you mentioned that you liked the theoretical classes. Can you, I remember, did. can you remember one in particular you liked? Tell me about that. My f favorite, but the most challenging was the theory of computability. One of the things that appealed to me about that course in particular was learning about Alan Turing. Mm -hmm. I had never really had names, significant names, and focusing on a specific individual in my computer science courses. It was mostly computer science concepts and not like the faces behind the people who invented or discovered them. Um, so that, that was really appealing to me. It could speak more about like the way that I like to learn, but yeah. And it was just fun to, to draw, like drawing as a part of solving problems. Um, very different from what you do in your other computer science courses. Yes. It's true. I mean, it, in a lot of ways, I sort of wish we did more drawing as part of solving problems. The electrical engineers sometimes do some of that. Did you ever, uh, did you ever cover Carnot maps, K-maps? I may have, but probably not in depth as like a computer engineer. Yeah, so K-maps are the ones where if you have a set of variables and you're trying to come up with a Boolean expression that, mm -hmm. uh, that says whether it's you know, true or false in the appropriate places, what you do is you take your variables and you divide them into a grid. So it's often like, okay, we've got uh, three bits this way and three bits this way for a total of six mm -hmm. bits that we're, uh, we're dealing with. So we'll divide them up and we'll just write them up into three columns here, three columns there, write all the true and false values in a grid. And then what yeah. you do is you know that like an and on certain values turns out to be a particular checkerboardy sort of pattern and an or turns out to be a different one. You know, an and is, is one big box lit up and three, uh -huh. three dark or, you know, an or is the opposite. An XOR is, is sort of a, a checkerboard with yeah. two off and two on. Um, and so a Carnot map is basically just finding visual patterns in the big one and you take the, the rough steps and you do that as your first one. And then once you've got that, you can add smaller uh, Boolean operations on just a few of them, only scoped to certain blocks. And so it's basically building a Boolean expression as a series of scoped blocks, as smaller and smaller blocks. It's the coolest thing. Yeah, um, now that you mention it, I do recall a faint memory of having some sort of pop quiz where we had to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, People who do serious electrical engineering often use them more than the, than the software types. And mm -hmm. uh, honestly, it's not a particularly practical day-to-day -day way to design <laughs> your Boolean operations. But man, it's fun. Yeah. 
Uh, okay, excellent. Um, so when you say theory of computability for this, this class you mentioned, uh, mm -hmm. my immediate thought would be covering Turing machines with sort of the tape and the, and the little nominal machine that moves backward and forward on the tape executing instructions and then, you know, seeing that, you know, multi-tape machines are equivalent to single tape machines and 2D machines are equivalent to yes. 1D machines, etc. So it was that sort of thing? Yes, exactly. Okay, okay. That is a lot of fun. Given that you did novels for your ethics class, I have to ask, have you read The Diamond Age by Neil Stevenson? I have not. Ooh. If you want a lovely piece of fiction that covers a lot of the computability concepts in a... It's a Neil Stevenson novel, so it doesn't actually end. It just kind of slowly grinds to a halt. But everything mm -hmm. up to that is amazing. <laughs> but yes, if you, if you get a chance. I, I like it enough that I read the entire thing out loud to my wife before we had children. Wow. On, on purpose, because it has some strong no, no. Yeah. Now I'll have to check it out. <laughs> I recommend it highly. Yeah, The Diamond Age by Neil Stevenson. It's, it's a really good one. Okay, so that makes sense. My immediate thought would be that a, a computability class, while it sounds neat, wouldn't necessarily be really applicable to your day-to-day -day job. Is that a fair summary, or would you say I'm, I'm wrong on that? Yes, I think that is a correct assessment. Okay. Would you say you had other theory classes that were more applicable to your job, or was it or not um, so much? Not so much, actually. It's not directly applicable. It provides context for you to develop an understanding of what you're doing, which I think is significant as well. But yeah. in terms of being directly applicable, I don't think it, it meets that criteria at all. I was, I was just curious because a lot of what I tend to you know, ask people about is how well they feel their education prepared them for that. A, a narrow interpretation of that question. There's, there's certainly more than one interpretation of the question. I, just reason mm -hmm. I keep, keep recording podcasts about it. Yeah. Um, but a narrow interpretation of that question would, would suggest that that didn't really prepare you for your job in, a, in an obvious way. Do you think that's a fair summary on my part? Yes, absolutely. Okay. I will say there are some other uh, things where you can learn about the history and learn about the people involved. And some of that is surprisingly practical. I, I don't think we're going to get a great biography of Alan Kay until he finally dies. But he's, he, he was the guy who invented small talk and invented the, the phrase object-oriented programming. And he has a really mm. strong idea of what object-oriented means. And Java mm -hmm. is not it. Um, oh. Yeah. No, object-oriented started out as a very different thing. And even small talk, which is very much what Ruby cribbed its idea from, is still not what he wants it to be. It was just as far as he was able to get on 1970s or 80s technology. Yeah, there are some wonderful talks by Avdi Grimm, uh, who's also in the Ruby community, about uh, object-oriented and what that's supposed to mean. Uh, and he, he draws a lot on the, the Alan Kay stuff. Uh, mm. But yeah, no, there's, there's wonderful personalities. You know, Alan Kay obviously has a lot of fun stories going on, and that's just the, the bits I know. It's interesting that you say that you don't usually think about a, a particular individual in computation, because I, I think you're right. I think that is absolutely how they teach it. I'm not disagreeing that, you know, I'm not saying, mm -hmm. oh, well, they taught that all the time in my classes. No, no, they really <laughs> didn't. It's just that I, I think more than most people, I've gone out and, and sort of looked for that. And so, you know, when I think about personalities in computing, uh, mm -hmm. I, I could talk about this all day. Because I have to say it, you know, it's, 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 only, it's only marginally relevant. Seymour Papert. Go out and, you know, Seymour Papert. Do you know, do you recognize the name Seymour Papert? I don't. Most Seymour people Papert. don't. Very few people do. So he invented Logo. And he invented Logo to teach debugging to small children, independently of computation. Not wow. debugging in the sense of a programming language. He wanted to teach them debugging as a generally applicable skill, not necessarily about computers. And he invented the Logo programming language as just kind of a step on the journey to do that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, he was actually a student of Piaget. You know Piaget? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's for, for any, anybody listening who doesn't. Uh, Piaget was the fellow who uh, brought us things like the stages of childhood development and the point at which they develop object permanence, where a ball that rolls behind something, they know there's still a ball there, because before a certain age they don't, and after that age they do. Uh, he had a bunch of wonderful students, many of whom went into computer science. Marvin Minsky, the famous AI pioneer, was also a student of Seymour Papert, and he was a popular one because he had eight children, two of whom were a male and female twin pair, and boy, uh, being the, the student of a child psychologist with a male and female twin pair, everybody <laughs> learns your phone number and goes to interview them. The flip side being that the male and female twin pair have been asked these, these Piaget questions so many times uh, that, for instance, there was a, a famous in instance where one of, one of his classmates goes and interviews the twins, and they're, they're uh, interviewing the little girl, and he pours you know, some liquid from one container into another, and he's, he says, do you think that, um, that after I pour it, there's more or less or the same amount? And she, she looks for a moment and she says, well, I think there's more, but you ought to talk to my brother because he has object permanence and I don't yet. <laughs> wow. I could tell computer history stories all day, but... Uh... I love it. I'd actually love to hear about it. That's exactly the kind of content I've been searching for. And it's just really hard to find like a, a large body of that. Yeah, there's, there's a little bit here and there, but I've, I've had the same problem with Alan Kay. Like I say, I think, I think everybody's waiting for him to die before they write a really good biography of him. Um, mm -hmm. You can find little bits here and there about him, but you can't find a lot about him. And that makes a certain amount of sense, given that he's still out doing his thing. And it's yeah. you know, one of the easiest ways to get really embarrassed is to write the obituary before they die. <laughs> well, it's, you know, newspapers he actually keep pre-written obituaries for all sorts of famous people at all ages. Um, they do? I would pay good money to see that archive because the thing is, the reason you keep it in the obituary drawer and you don't go fact check it before they die is that if they do something massively embarrassing tomorrow, you go in and you revise the obituary because it's just changed tone completely. Wow. I and had so, no idea. Well, you want to be able to, I mean, if, if, okay, Michael Jackson's dead, but you know, if, I don't know, uh, Taylor Swift were to die tomorrow you want to be immediately there. You don't turn to your reporter and you say, ah, we got a couple of days, write a, write a biography of Taylor Swift, but with mm -hmm. the, you know, the, she's dead spin and then we'll get it. Like, no, you need it there. And that means you have one in the drawer just in case she dies tomorrow. Hmm, but luckily you can keep it for a while. You only need to revise it when something major happens, Taylor Swift was. This might not be as relevant, but I am wondering if that would ever be something that we would need to do as programmers. <laughs> As programmers, I could, I could sort of formulate this as a caching problem because it is, mm -hmm. in, a, in a very real way, uh, there are some horrible caching situations where you might need to produce something so fast that you have it pre-written. I'm an old guy, and so I've seen too much of everything, and so I immediately think of it as a graphics driver problem. But again, that's because I, I've seen too many things. Um, <laughs> no, so OpenGL which was, was the open graphics driver standard where, uh, where, where it was not a standard controlled by Microsoft. Uh, DirectX was the equivalent for Microsoft and it had a lot more sort of direct access to buffers behind the scenes, which made it incredibly hard to implement for random platforms. OpenGL was, was the, good, the good standard uh, in mm -hmm. the sense that it was designed to be workable on a variety of platforms. Also, they did it that way because they implemented the whole thing just straight up in hardware. Almost, ev almost everywhere, and so they, they, had you, they had you hand the buffers to them in whatever form because they didn't really care what. They were just going to stick it into the hardware buffer and get on with their day. But uh, I worked on, at, at NVIDIA on OpenGL drivers, and OpenGL uh, was, was uh, written 
long before even then when a lot of the I.O. problems were different and a lot of the speeds of things were different. And so they didn't have big shared model objects. If you wanted to have a, uh, a cathedral, if you wanted mm -hmm. to have Notre Dame Cathedral as a, as a grid of points, which you can totally do, you know, it turns into polygons like everything else. Um, it's mm -hmm. a lot of polygons. Very often for a benchmark, what you want to do is to have Notre Dame Cathedral and then to, you know, rotate it in space or move it around or you move around it or something like that. And OpenGL yeah. is absolutely not designed for that. And so you would wind up downloading the full grid of points for Notre Dame Cathedral every time. Every wow. time. Technically, you had shared models in OpenGL. There, there are people who are going to, you know, shake their fists at me. The thing is, you couldn't change a lot of the shading and lighting models and stuff for them, so they were useless. If you were actually going to use Notre Dame Cathedral in your benchmark, you had to download it every time. So the way you would handle that in the graphics driver, because the graphics driver figured out pretty quickly that you were downloading Notre Dame Cathedral every frame, is that they needed an extremely fast way to say, you just downloaded the first hundred points of something that looks very familiar to me from last frame, and I think we're going to be doing this for about 250,000 more points. So I'll just, I've, got, I've saved my 250,000 point model of Notre Dame Cathedral, and you're going to keep making calls, and I'm just going to move my finger as fast as possible each time after verifying that you've given me the point of Notre Dame Cathedral that I think you've given me, and then I'm going to turn around and tell the graphics driver, don't do anything, you have it already. Okay? Go. <laughs> Wow. And in the, so you asked me about, you know, sort of, sort of pre-caching the obituary. Yeah. You, you think you know what you're going to need, but you don't know when you're going to need it. And so mm -hmm. you just have it fully calculated and ready to go. <laughs> and you only make changes if something changes. Uh, mm -hmm. As a computing problem, what that reminds me of is an OpenGL API. <laughs> wow. Good to know. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, almost everything can turn into a computing problem. The question is just what bizarre set of circumstances is going to make yeah. it useful to anyone and the answer may be never the answer <laughs> may even provably be never in some cases and in that case what it's good for is weird coding challenges true something that's very true something that is provably always useless is so rare that a lot of people put opposing problems are looking for it because then they can make sure that nobody ever actually had to do it at work mm. The impression then that I got is your theory classes mostly didn't do a lot of preparing you for your job, but you appreciate them a lot anyway. Do you feel that your practical classes at UCSD prepared you well for, for your actual job? I think that was the intention of those courses. In okay. practice, it didn't work out so well for a variety of reasons. We actually did have one software engineering course that was required that specific quarter. We had a new professor coming into our campus and so the course began as scheduled, but the actual course work wasn't formulated until a couple weeks into the course. Um, and being on a quarter system where your classes are only like 10 or 12 weeks, that those weeks are precious. And so in theory, that course was supposed to help us most for the careers that many of us would go into, which is software engineering. But it, it really didn't for those students, including myself, who were taking that course at that particular quarter with that professor. So we were introduced to GitHub, working with different team members, um, because in most of our other courses, it's pairing or pretty individual. And so it was a nice glimpse into that kind of world, but it, it definitely wasn't sufficient. In terms of my other courses, i feel like they're not directly applicable to your day-to-day -day job um, and responsibilities as a software engineer, but 
something that I've encountered is having to prove your knowledge to your coworkers, and that's where it comes in handy. That so it's sense. not, yeah. But most people say job interview at that point, which is one kind of that, but I don't get the impression that's what you mean. Now, I think I know what you mean, but tell me more about that. Sure. Um, the, the job interviews that I've had have varied. They've been like standard whiteboard questions. So of course your data structure and algorithms courses are extremely useful. But what I mean is like developing, indicating to other people who also were computer science majors that you are a part of their club and asserting that you could be accepted in their culture. So that means being introduced to like things that you could name drop. Um, such as functional programming languages. And that's unfortunately like less about your actual job and more about navigating your perception and how that affects your perceived performance. So more like, for instance, the point at one random job interview I was in where uh, the fellow looked up, pointed at my XKCD t-shirt and said, ah, XKCD t-shirt, culture fit check. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, so, I, 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 have, I, I doubt that he will ever, ever listen to this, and I, I mean it affectionately if you ever do listen to this. But yeah, it's, it's kind of a, it's a microcosm of what's wrong with the industry, right? And he's not uniquely bad. The problem is that that's so typical. Yeah, and I, I don't blame any individual for perpetuating that kind of environment. I know that people in general just want to relate to other people, and those, if those are the points of how they relate, then that's totally fine. For somebody like me who didn't grow up using computers, programming on computers, that that was a novel thing for me to experience. And I, I was not prepared for those situations until they came up and I experienced them. And I realized I like put it into my mental model. Okay, so this is apparently what matters to people. What matters to people and what should matter to people is always very different. Yeah, that's all yeah. right. You've, you've got a whole lifetime of, of dealing with, uh, <laughs> with the corporate world and the, the different and weird divergences of what matters to people and what doesn't matter to people. You've, you have so much of that to learn. Uh, yeah. And so to answer your question in full, um, a computer science degree is wonderful to introduce you to the concepts, but to prepare you for a software engineering career, I think is insufficient because I feel like the main parts of the career that matter is how you interact with people and it's more of like a symbiotic relationship that requires a lot of communication in developing ideas together. There's a wonderful set of things that are written by uh, Jessica Kerr, uh, Jesse Tron. Have you by any chance read any of her stuff? I have, yeah. Okay. It, she, I think she's mentioned in Abdi Grimm's newsletters from time to time. Uh, frequently, the the two of them work together quite quite frequently. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Or oh, they they do they do like screencasts together and things like that. They they work together a lot. But uh, yeah, when she talks about semantheses, learning systems made of learning components, and the the sort of above the line, below the line thing, where you've got the mm -hmm. entire system and it's you know it's made of the sort of simulations of the system in the minds of the of the team. Uh, I suppose when you say that, that immediately reminds me of that. Um, yes. You, you know what I mean? Yeah, I. That's exactly what I mean. I think she says it better. Um, uh, well, she, she has more space than, than we have in this, uh, <laughs> in, in, in this podcast. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, but yes, if you, uh, if you go look up Symathesy and Jessica Kerr, you'll, you'll, uh, listeners, um, 
you, you will find a number of interesting things she has to say. There's one, she, uh, where she, there's one article she writes about uh, the birth of opera and the Italian camarada that is, is kind of the, the best initial description of what she's talking about. Um, it's more relevant than I make it sound, but uh, even though I lo like telling long rambling stories and so does she, I, I promise you it, it is a much better way to learn about it than listening to me tell different long rambling stories. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, I, well, yeah. If you haven't read that one, you should. It's it's definitely kind of J Jessica Kerr in, in in fine form. You know, doing doing some of her best work. I, I love that article. I went out and got one of her little stickers afterward. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So it sounds like a lot of the actual preparation for your job in terms of coding ability. Where I mean, there needs to be some of that certainly. I say certainly just because we're web programmers. It turns out that, uh, that round about the time I graduated, surprisingly often you could get away with no coding ability whatsoever and just pretending. But, uh, but I, I, one of the things I love about modern web development is you have to be a little more honest than you did back in OS development when it was a 60-person team and hiding could be a perfectly valid strategy. Uh, <laughs> I, like, I like this new world better that way. Um, so yeah, you, you, had to, you had to actually be able to program. So it sounds like uh, the Spice class that you mentioned, the sort of pre-college class that you mentioned, mm -hmm. was probably a lot of the direct uh, school teaching you useful programming in a, in a prep for the job case. Would, would you call that a fair summary or not so much? Yes, I, I really, I, I felt like the structure of the program helped much more than my courses, which were very individualistic. In this program, we were actually like, I would describe it as kind of a coding camp. Hmm. We were situated in these dormitories. Um, so we were always in con like constant interaction with our teammates, I guess, or our partners, our programming partners, yeah. um, and strongly encouraged to talk about our programming out loud. Nice, okay. Which we didn't, we didn't really have an opportunity to do that in our um, courses within our major because we would go to lecture, sit and listen to the professor in like 500 people classrooms. Mm -hmm. um, and then there were some opportunities to go to office hours and what we would call discussion classes, um, mm -hmm. which I would, I think that if, I don't mean to criticize um, the university and all the people who have put in a lot of hard work and thought into developing the structure that existed at the time that I went to the university. But I think if we flipped it and put more focus on discussion classes rather than lectures, it would have been a better learning experience for me, at least as a student. Now, when you say discussion classes, I've got a thing in my mind. We had some other name for them that I'm completely forgetting. But we had a mm -hmm. lot of the kind of early classes where there was a giant lecture and then mm -hmm. you'd break into small sessions with teaching assistants and they would, you know, help with the homework and go over sort of more, more small group sort of things. It, was it roughly like that? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, I will say the reason the universities are mostly structured like that is that compared to professors, teaching assistants are very cheap. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I mean it in the best possible way, and I had some amazing teaching assistants, but uh, I feel that's not necessarily the fault of the university. Uh, yeah. I know a lot of people I talk to, even people with, with university degrees, and really mm -hmm. this is true of me too, you know, it sort of felt like the university was testing your knowledge of some of these practical skills, but a lot of how you learned them was self-study. Does that sound like a reflection of, of your experience as well, or not so much? Yes, I, I see some truths in that in my own experience. It is partly to do with the, the quarter system. Mm -hmm. I felt like because 
Um, your exams came very quickly and your projects came very quickly. You would learn a bunch of the information that was presented to you in your lectures um, in like if there was required reading, which there usually never was in computer science, um, whatever you took from that. And like students, I guess myself, I'd condense it, apply it where it was necessary. And then after the final, it would just disappear because I needed to make room for my upcoming courses. And so, yes, I agree. <laughs> Within the university curriculum. Do you look back and wish you'd taken a different set of classes in a way that was allowed? Do you feel like you, you sort of took good advantage of the program when you were in it? I'm, I'm, I'm ignoring the idea of if you could have redesigned it into something even better, if you could have done yeah. that, because I assume you could. But within the structure, do you feel like you took good advantage of it? I think so, yes. I was fortunate enough to go to a university that offered undergraduate research programs, um, especially for, I guess, like students that fit under the diversity umbrella, including myself. So I actually had the chance to work on research teams um, for two years, both at uh, UCSD and UC Irvine. Yeah, which I felt like was a great chance for me to actually learn how computers, like what I was learning in my computer science courses was actually applied to research or the real world and so so then this uh, was essentially acting like a almost like a part-time worker on a on a research team that would that already yeah existed. yeah okay. nice. mm -hmm. so was... i got to i guess shadow um phd candidates and uh, master's students um i got exposure to what that kind of culture was like as well um, and being able to observe those things firsthand did help me tremendously um, in terms of the things that I probably could have utilized better within the university was probably like networking mm. that wasn't really my strong suit when I was that young uh, I didn't feel qualified enough to, to even talk to people because I had felt like my computer science education wasn't completed and so there was no, no way that I could talk to those people. But that's but, just wrong. I was going to say, but now you've learned that even if you feel like you, you don't fully understand it, if that, if that shut you up, we should all be silent the entire time. So that, that's yeah. Good. Yeah. Like the, there is no criteria you need to meet to, to be able to talk to somebody. I think curiosity is enough. Um, and I had wished I'd understood that when I was younger because there were so many great people at the university that had access to, but I just was too timid to approach them. A person being like Ronald Graham, who passed away this year, I, I never got a course with him and I never spoke to him, even though like on my way to my research lab, I'd always see him. That, yeah, it's, you, you always look back and, and yeah, there's, there, it, it's nothing, nothing but wasted opportunity. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Do you ever think about going and emailing folks that you, uh... I mean, the ones I, that haven't passed away, obviously. Yes. Um, I do know that they are very busy, and so I don't expect any response. But, but yeah, I have considered it. They'd probably be happy to hear from you. I mean, I don't know for sure, but I, yeah. I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they found that, you know, somebody else interested in the, in the topic was, uh, was worth their time just because you were interested in the topic. Well, that's promising. Thank you. They're, they're willing to spend all this time on grad students. They must think there's something to, you know, talking to people with an interest. <laughs> That's true. 
so you talked about, uh, it sounded like programming languages type classes. Uh, you mentioned mm -hmm. like OCaml and uh, Prolog um, mm -hmm. in, uh, in message before, uh, before this interview, you said uh, OCaml or Haskell. Actually, did you, uh, did you learn any Haskell? Or was that just a, another choice that you didn't take? Um, so there were some quarters where different professors were teaching the programming languages course, and yeah. it was their choice to use Haskell. So I had some classmates within my major who used Haskell to implement the same projects, but our professor liked OCaml. And so yeah. I had to learn Haskell, um, I guess, on my own. Okay. And I would have preferred to have... I guess a course that actually encouraged the use of Hamel, Haskell. Yeah, it's easy to easy to, to confuse them. I mean, Hamel is something <laughs> you probably hear mentioned a lot more often in Rubyland. Um, no, yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, yeah, Haskell's tough to pick up on your own. I, I did the same, and it's it's not the easiest. You did? Yeah. yeah. The the big purple book, right? The the yeah, it's called like mm -hmm. it's, it's like Haskellbook.com or something. I, I don't know. Yeah. You, you might have used a different. I used the big purple book. <laughs> I just read, I just tried to read the docs. That's always like my, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, there are very few languages where that's the easiest way to do it. And that's not usually because the docs are so good. It's usually only languages where there's no good way to do it. Uh-huh. There's a, there's an old mud driver I worked on called DGD. And the best way to learn it really is to learn the, to, to, uh, to read the docs. And it's not wow. because the docs are so good. It's because there's no other way to learn it. <laughs> But yeah, apart from my computer science courses, I actually feel like the textbooks, the programming textbooks that I read now are much more applicable to the textbooks that I was asked to buy at university, like this yeah. like C pro programming language textbook. I don't really open that one um, compared to like textbooks that are popular in the Ruby community or like JavaScript textbooks. Um, the like the famous um, pragmatic programmer. That's a good yeah. One. Mm -hmm. and yeah, it's very aimed at, at the job rather than the, the technical stuff. In fact, it's it's really sort of all the all the non computer skills you need to be a software engineer. Yeah, exactly. And I I do think that actually is very important. Maybe even more so than like your technical skills. There was another fellow who recommended uh, Mike Gunderloy's book. Uh, oh, it's called something like Coder to Developer. And it's the same kind of thing. It's a very similar mm. book. There are a few books like that. I, I try to mention them just because there are so few. And if you're looking for that, and you should be, uh, not you, but I mean, you know, everybody, mm -hmm. it's good to mention the few that there are because they're pretty. They're, they're, there are a few pretty good ones. Okay, Coder to yeah. Developer. I'll check yeah. that one out. Yeah, Mike Gunderloy. And it's, okay. yeah, it's, it's solid. Did you find that picking up uh, other programming paradigms. So OCaml is is really fairly different from from Ruby, say, or from most most of what almost everybody uses day to day. Yeah. Um, Haskell as well is is an unusual paradigm in a very way, real way. Haskell is its own programming paradigm and not all that much like anything else. And Prolog mm -hmm. certainly. Prolog I, I felt was well, unusual to an extent that I couldn't name you another language like Prolog other than its very direct. Uh, yeah, if yeah. If, if you wouldn't call it a prologue variant, I don't know anything else that's very much like prologue. Mm -hmm. uh, SQL, but not really. <laughs> yeah. So did you find that uh, learning different programming paradigms like that was valuable with an eye toward, toward, again, actual work on the job? Or did you find it was more a curiosity or neither? How did you find that to be? Both. Both applicable to the job and it fed my curiosity. 
Um, it's a way to keep students engaged, of course, if they're interested in learning different kinds of languages that exist. Um, and I think what makes it applicable to my everyday job is that that may be a requirement where you have to implement something in a stack that you have no idea about. Um, so it just, I guess, it is the introduction to building those neural pathways in your brain. It's just like um, maybe riding a bike for the first time and then maybe needing to ride a tricycle or those bikes where you lay down. You know, they all kind of do the same thing. There are modes of transportation, but it requires a different kind of approach and thinking. Um, so yeah, I actually do think exposing yourself to new, I guess, new ways of thinking um, and implementing is so important um, in this field. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me because I've done a little of everything and I often pick mm -hmm. up weird new things rapidly because it sort of reminds me of something else. It's a little like, yeah. you know, what you talked about. What if you translated this non-programming concept into, oh, that's a graphics driver. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. What do you do to improve these days? You know, you're no longer in university, so. Yeah. Uh, but what, what do you do to improve? I love watching conference talks. If I have the means to do so, I love Udemy courses or courses that like specific individuals make. I love watching people talk through programming concepts or like uh, cloud topics even. I don't know what it is about listening to somebody articulate it, but it really helps to integrate it within my own mind. Um, and then apart from that, I like to do independent study I love reading textbooks, as weird as that might be. Um, there's just some part of me that really loves studying. I recently learned about like classic academia. Have you heard about that? Uh, it's, have you heard of, I think the most famous one, like the most famous subset of that is dark academia. Um, it's, there's something that goes through my head, but I'll bet I'm wrong. Tell me more. It's, it's an aesthetic. It's the name of an aesthetic. Um, Okay, yeah. No, no, that's not what I, I was thinking. <laughs> so you might see feeds like Tumblr blogs or Instagrams where it's like very academic focused. So there's lots of pictures of people's notes of sure. libraries of coffee. So um, really just an aesthetic, like yes. it's, it's, it's academic aesthetic focused, just pictures of big buildings and libraries. Yeah. Things oh. that remind you of, I guess, studying and learning. So does dark um, academic mean like dark wood paneling and leather? Or does it that, mean conceptually dark in some other way? Both. Both. All yeah. Right. So I think they, I don't know exactly what they focus on. It's like some branth, branch of mythology that maybe they like. Um, okay. But yeah, I only mentioned that because I had recently learned that it's, an, it's a thing that sure. like, people like and I don't know if I fall under that umbrella because I love studying I'm not sure but well I mean if you if you talk about liking the aesthetic I mean that sounds sounds like you're volunteering to be associated with it I, I guess so but it's, that's what it sounded like I mean there's nothing as good as making yourself a cup of tea maybe lighting some candles and then like sitting down with like your favorite textbook and then just like reading it it's like that makes sense. the mark of a relaxing evening to me 
Well, I will, I will mention this to you because it's something my wife and I did relatively recently, and it, it may go somewhere you know, on your bucket list. Um, we got a house recently in Scotland. That's not the interesting part. And we, we added you know, uh, bookshelves all over the walls. And specifically, we added uh, great big rough-finished uh, wood slices, think tree slices with like the bark still attached. And so these are these are bookshelves where you can you know look down the, the separations between them and there's bark and it's it's got rather nice shelves in between. But wow. one of the joys of a tall room full of bookshelves is we finally had a genuine reason to buy one of those sliding library ladders. We now have a sliding library ladder in our big big central room. No way, that's like a life goal. <laughs> I, I, I blame the fact that, uh, so I come from a rich family in the middle of nowhere in Texas, and I have a, an aunt. So my, my dad raised a family of five, uh, of, of, you know, of five, five kids plus him and his wife uh, on, on the family money. And my aunt inherited the same amount of family money, and she spent a lot of time living in Venice, Italy, and having boyfriends, and jet-setting around in Europe, and generally having mm -hmm. a fine time, and then came back and restores houses and things like that. One of the joys of living in the middle of nowhere in Texas is money goes a long way. And so one of the things she did was she built a two-story library in her backyard. Like wow. we, can, we can brag about our one library letter. Certainly <laughs> my Aunt Mary Laura does better on mm -hmm. that count. You know, if, if, you, if you measure somebody by their number of library letters, she's an uncommonly uh, accomplished lady. <laughs> I love that. I, I do too, but I suspect, you know, showing my wife her library, you know, put that sort of as a, we could, we could do that. We could, we could get our own library ladder. Yeah. We don't have to envy the one in Texas, you know, <laughs> the, the, the several in Texas. I think one of the best ways to learn and keep up to date in this industry as well, um, I might be biased, is contributing to open source. And you actually have to be dedicated to it. Like it just, like actually invest in whatever project you want to make or um, contribute to and know that your place there matters and that you can actually have a significant impact. I feel like open source is just amazing. It provides an opportunity um, to, to do work that is meaningful to you. Um, maybe it like you have a larger scope of influence uh, within that project that you might not have in your like professional role. It's, it's empowering and good all around. So you mentioned uh, Udemy classes, mm -hmm. uh, individual classes from individual people, you know, textbooks. All, all of those are great categories. Are there any particular standouts? Are there any particular books or classes or similar that have been especially good that you've just found were, were unusually excellent? Hmm, that is a wonderful question. In terms of learning things about AWS, there is somebody who is referred to as the Burning Monk. And I think that's actually his like website name as well. He does wonderful courses on AWS. Do you mind if I like talk about specific textbooks? I don't mind in the slightest. That's, that's the kind of thing I was hoping for when I asked the question. Sure, okay, so obviously uh, Pragmatic Programmer. I've just started reading JavaScript, The Good Bits, um, or The Good Parts. Yeah. Uh, that one is really nice so far. Anything by Sandy Metz. Yep. <laughs> I said yeah. the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's just great. It's just, it, it's something you can read over and over again as well. Yeah, those are my recommendations um, for courses and textbooks Sorry. that I've taken so far. Um, I'm sure there's a bunch out there that are worthy of recognition, but I just haven't read it or consumed yeah. it. 
Yeah, well, we, we can't all have read everything. There's not much yeah. in the world. <laughs> and one of the things we keep being reminded of by the internet is it turns out that we couldn't even keep consuming all the new stuff as it came out. There's just more than there are hours in a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you may have answered this with the open source thing, and then again, you may not have. But I'll ask either way. Pretend this podcast gets massively popular. Everybody hears you. Everybody loves what you have to say. If this was a Twitter thread, it would have just gone viral and you'd be posting your SoundCloud. What's your SoundCloud? Where do you want to point people? Where would you like people to go next? I would like everyone to check out the open source project, COVID Can I Do It? Okay. COVID Um, Can I Do It? Yeah. It's a website where you can go. I don't think it's relevant to you since you're not in the U.S. or Uganda, but that's the data that we have now. And what COVID Can I Do It does is it lets you search any activity you want to do. And um, even if you want to input a location um, and a time, and it tells you your risk of contracting COVID from doing that activity. And it gives a really nice breakdown. And data sets, neat. mm -hmm, Yeah, and from the expertise of the public health individuals on the team, um, who actually are the ones who are driving this project. So yeah. Please visit that. that, that that's, that's a great answer. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah, I don't really want to direct people to my Twitter or social media sites because I actually don't like to get attention. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, that's fair. That's yeah. fair. I can, I can avoid posting those in the, in the show notes. I mean, they'll probably be able to find you if they try anyway. Yeah. I, well, I yeah, you can post it. I just don't want to like explicitly tell people to find me. Yeah. Something about that like makes me nervous. Uh, fair. Perfectly reasonable. You know you better than I know you, given that I've you know only met you at Ruby con- conferences mostly and you know read your Twitter. You know you better than I know you. Mm-hmm. On this topic, on your education, the various ways you've, you've trained in software development, software engineering, everything related, uh, mm-hmm. and how that education has prepared you for a job, what's the question I should have asked you specifically that I haven't asked you yet? What should I be asking you, which, because I don't know you as well as you do, I haven't managed to ask yet? I think something that would have been amusing to have been asked was, how did you learn unspoken cultural norms in the industry? That's a good one. That's yeah. That's a great question. Well, well done. How, how did you learn <laughs> unspoken cultural norms in the industry? Uh, part of it was like putting myself in the position um, where I was in the industry. Um, That might be more difficult for people trying to get a foot in the industry. Um, There's textbooks out there actually about ways to thrive in corporate environments, which is what many of us software engineers do uh, in our roles. Uh, Only part of our role actually is like developing software. I think another is navigating the corporate structure and the um, implicit rules that exist within it. I don't have like a straightforward answer about what is right and wrong. It's very individual. Um, sure. Yeah. There are textbooks. Do you remember the names of any of those textbooks? I don't. Okay. Well, just knowing there are textbooks tells me what I should, uh, what I could potentially go out and search for. Yeah. I'm curious. I, I actually, actually have, a, have a friend who's having this precise problem. And if you, if you knew a textbook, that would actually be a, a great recommendation for me to pass along. <laughs> I actually have a book, a recommendation, as opposed to a textbook. Um, Please. It's called Corporate Confidential. Okay. 
I think I have yeah. seen that it exists on Amazon, but hadn't heard anybody talk about it. So I hadn't known yeah. about it. Corporate Confidential. Excellent. I will. Yeah. Uh, and everybody's experience differs. Sure. It is like as somebody who really didn't know people or had parents who worked in a corporate environment, I really did not. I wasn't prepared to, I guess, operate in that environment coming from university. Yeah. And so I think that's like my, the, the major obstacle for me in, in my career. Um, and probably, or hopefully other people who relate can get unblocked by that yeah. information. No, that, that sounds like a great recommendation. It took me a while to understand it, but I was kind of an idiot when I was young, and so it took me a lot longer to understand that I had to understand it. Uh, yeah. And, of course, you know, there's, there's, you can't recommend a book as a cure for willful ignorance, alas. Um, <laughs> I just had to get older. <laughs> Whereas my friend knows that she's trying to, uh, to, to fix this problem, and I don't necessarily know any good resources because uh, I learned it all by uh, banging my head against a lot of walls and being, mm -hmm. you know fired multiple times and things like that, which is, is not, I assume, the fast way to do it. <laughs> so because I'm curious, yeah. what did you think of Prologue when you used it? It's so fun. It's, okay. it's so different. Okay. Um, the context I was using it in was um, with a restaurant menu, like a fake restaurant, yeah. Mexican restaurant menu. Um, I don't remember exactly what we did. It, maybe it was like updating the menu or like ordering things from the menu, but it felt like a game. Okay. It was like the first programming language that felt, yeah, like a game. And like, okay. I, I didn't feel very in control. <laughs> that was, yeah, they, they gave us more kind of standard programming ta uh, tasks with it. And it felt a little like trying to brush your teeth with a jump rope. Like it, it just really? felt like it was completely the wrong tool for the job. Uh -huh. um, but I can see how there's, there's a similarity between what I'm saying and what you're saying. It's, yeah. I mean, brushing your teeth with a jump rope could actually be a fun game. It just wouldn't be uh, the, the, the easiest way to brush your teeth. Yeah, exactly. Like there was no straightforward solution. It, yeah, which I thought was fun. It was really creative. Um, or I guess like an outlet for creativity. So That makes sense. Yeah. Did you use it enough that you, uh, you started to learn a lot about its traversal order? You know what I mean? No. Um, one of the weirdest things about Prologue for me was I'd never thought of programming as a depth first search, but it kind of is. Like uh -huh. when, you, when you look at function calls, what you're doing is you are descending into the function call. And, and yeah. Get, yeah. I mean, it, it, any, any traversal that acts the way you expect it to tends to be a, a depth first traversal in a programming language. And Prologue was a breadth first traversal. It was as though you could do a breadth first search instead of a depth first search for function calls. It's funny that you mentioned that because I, that was exactly why Prolog was introduced to us in that okay. course. Uh, yeah. I've never seen another programming language do it. Uh-huh, same. And I suppose, I mean, it feels like it should open a vista of new possibilities. It shouldn't <laughs> just be depth first search or breadth first search. You should be able to do all kinds of things. And then I realized that the reason depth first search is, or uh, breadth first search is so hard is that you have to learn the whole gut level understanding that we did with depth first search doing regular programming oh uh -huh. you know i can't do this this way because it's going to recurse forever oh i can't do this this way because it's it's a really inefficient way to do it it's going to look in completely the wrong order and uh -huh. really we've put in weeks and then months and then years of effort into getting a feel for that and so when you go yeah. to breadth first search it's a little like um if you learned to swim in something that was a, a very different weight than water and so you were you know sinking at the wrong times or things like that yeah like exactly you've gotta, yeah you've, you've got to 
learn a whole new set of steps. And so mm-hmm. imagine all the different traversal orders. Oh, <laughs> oh, wow. That would take a really long time to get any good at whatsoever. No, yeah. Like, I, I, think, I think I want one traversal <laughs> order. I'm not necessarily tied to which one it is, but I think there should be one. Yes, agreed. <laughs> That's a, that, 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 that is a great take on Prologue. I'm glad you were introduced to it in a way where it felt like a game. Um, that sounds more pleasant than, than what we did. Yeah. Yeah, it was a wonderful professor. I was really fortunate to have him. I think he actually focused on computer science education. So, nice. yeah. That's, wow, that's wonderful. I, so for, for better and for worse, uh, the place I went, Carnegie Mellon, was very focused on getting Department of Defense grants. Because mm. early on in the history of a lot of these things, that was where the money came from. There was also mm-hmm. nominally student tuition, but the, the real money came from Department of Defense grants. Uh, mm-hmm. And so you tended to get people who were very good at getting Department of Defense grants and might perhaps also have been somewhat inclined to, to teach people because they were willing to become a professor while, as their primary and interesting job, applying for a Department of Defense grants and then doing the necessary uh-huh. Yeah, getting somebody who was seriously interested in computer education sounds... I I just, you know, it stopped me for a moment as I realized, oh, <laughs> yes, I, I suppose in a university you could get one of those. Huh. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's not impossible. <laughs> yeah, it's it's wonderful. It's... You know, the, the, ma- the math professor I remember by far the most fondly, who was amazing, who was absolutely wonderful, and it really was that he was actually interested in the education. It's just math is short on Department of Defense grants, so it's easier to get mm-hmm. one of those in the math department. Ah. <laughs> Well, I mean, from the university's point of view, you can see why they take the, the, the fellow who's going to uh, to bring in a lot more money. Um, yeah, and for, definitely. And in the math department where that's not an option, I suppose you could also get someone who liked teaching students, perhaps, as a, as a bit of an eccentricity. Yeah. I'm trying to think for personalities in computer science, you know, uh-huh. like where, where, I, where I could send you. Seymour Papert uh, wrote an excellent book called Mindstorms. And so you see... you mentioned that to me at RubyConf, oh, and I've had it go. in my wish list forever. It's a um, really good book. Uh, my my wife is a teacher, and of course, I spend a lot of time you know teaching. Uh, it is both an excellent book for programming and an excellent book for teaching. Plus, you know, Seymour Papert stories because if you've got uh-huh. somebody who's one of Piaget's students and one of the early computing pioneers, there's going to be some some fun stories. Uh, but of course, they're mainly st- fun stories about teaching children because that's what the book's about, and that's why he invented Logo. And... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So yes, Mindstorms by Seymour Papert is a really good one. Trying to think sort of other personalities. Uh, This is not a good recommendation. And in fact, it's a terrible recommendation. But I'm (laughs) going to say it anyway, because it makes me happy. Um, One of the first personalities in computing that I ever found out about was because I used to play the Bard's Tale, the first Bard's Tale game on the Apple IIe. And... It is clear that it was written by programmers. Of course it was written by programmers. It was a computer game. It was written by programmers. Um, Uh But the big enemy in the first and third Bard's Tale game, uh, well, no, one of the big enemies in the first one and the big enemy in the third one was Tarjan the Mad God. You probably haven't read enough computer science research papers that that's funny on its own. Uh, But Tarjan was the last name of one of the early programming researchers who did like graph algorithms. There are still a lot of uh, graph algorithms where if you go research it, the right answer is to use Tarjan's algorithm for several different Tarjan's algorithms. Uh, mm. And so that was my first exposure to uh, to personalities and commuting was where I realized <laughs> that this this big boss from uh, from old video games was in fact huh? a, a major graph theory researcher. <laughs> computer That's stuff. amusing. I really like that. Yeah, it's. I, I mean, it's the game doesn't really work it in in any particularly interesting 
you know, way. It's, I, I don't think there are a lot of hidden jokes about graph theory that I'm missing there, uh, other than the fact that, you know, it's a computer game and they named the, they, they named the enemy Tarjan. Though you have to wonder, presumably he's, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't remember if he lived long enough to have heard about it. I, I wonder how you'd feel as a, as a computer science researcher being made the mad god in a, uh, you know, in a, in a game like that. <laughs> I, I think I would be flattered. I would find it funny. I, I would too. I would too. <laughs> but you know. I suppose in, in this age of Kickstarter, you can you can now you know pay people to make you uh, to to make you a, an enemy in a video game. At least if you pick the right one. But, uh, huh, I guess so. <laughs> well, I, I've seen a lot of Kickstarters where you can do things like. Do you know Girl Genius? You know the the webcomic Girl Genius. I don't. Okay, it's That's really another good. thing I should check out. You absolutely genius. should. That has the advantage of being entirely free online. And, you know, free is a good price as they go. Wow. Um, but it's really good. I've, I've read all, all of it out loud to my, uh, to my children, at least all of it that exists on paper, uh, and have since they were tiny. So, so they just think of Girl Genius as a standard thing everybody knows about, which of course <laughs> it isn't. But that's, that's okay. It's really good for reading out loud because it has a lot of funny voices in it. Uh, anyway, sorry. So, uh, so Girl Genius, uh, they have a they have a video game related to it that's finally coming out. And one of the things you can do is pay like a thousand dollars to be caricatured as a portrait on the wall in the castle, and they will put a little little silly biography of you. Your biography is subject to approval by the by the game people. Um, but so if you're willing to pay enough money, you can be you know uh, in the video game as as decoration, and that kind of thing's not uncommon. It turns out there are a lot of cases where for a small fee you can get put in a list of backers, and for a larger fee you can you can do something. Uh, I want to say that the original Kickstarter for We Happy Few, which is a dystopian British setting game. Um, there was there was definitely a level at which you could get uh, to to attend a party with the development team, but I believe mm -hmm. there was also a level where you could be one of the little uh, voices in the English countryside. You could be one of the various people that was that was saying <laughs> wacky things, and you could be a, be a little character in a in a scenario in the game. That kind of thing is getting more common because it turns out people will pay a lot for it, and it's comparatively easy for the dev team to do. Huh. I don't think you can oh. be a major boss in very many video games on Kickstarter, but uh, but somebody's out there trying to make it happen because you know <laughs> people would pay for it. Yeah. I, I know people would pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Well, this has been Noah Gibbs with Computer Science, Just the Useful Bits, and this has been Jennifer Tran, who has been a wonderful guest and has talked about all sorts of lovely things and even put up with me telling stories on semi-related uh, topics. So thank you for all of that. It's been great to have you. Thank you for having me on the show. It's been great.